Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Good morning. It's Friday 13th of October. Coming up on The Michael Reed Show this morning, the Israeli army is poised to launch a grand invasion of Gaza, but at what cost to the civilian population with the very latest? Sparks fly at the Doyle Public Accounts Committee as RTE and the committee clash over documentation relating to the payment scandal. A Workplace Relations Commission agreement that covers temporary layoffs at Tara Mines has been extended. And school principals will be calling on the Minister for Education this morning to take measures to alleviate the increasing levels of stress in the ranks due to over-administration. Don't forget, if you want to call us, you can do so. Text or WhatsApp 86 658 or you can email michael at lmfm.ie. Good morning. You're very welcome to the programme. First this morning, a Workplace Relations Commission agreement that covers temporary layoffs at Tara Mines has been extended. After SIP2 met management yesterday, the companies agreed to extend the deal until the 31st of January. It includes a €65 Euro retainer to all workers on temporary layoff, along with the extension to the premium payment of health insurance. SIP2 section organiser John Regan says they have also called for the Tara Mines uh, complex to be reopened as soon as possible. And John Reagan joins us this morning. John, good morning. Thanks for taking our call. Firstly, could you bring us back perhaps to June of this year and talk to us a little bit about the genesis of what happened back then and why we are why where we are now? Good morning, Alan. Yeah, look, it's, um, it's a terrible situation that obviously we found ourselves in back in June where the company had decided due to market pressures and the price of zinc uh, for collapsing. And um, that was their main reason for um, putting the mine into care and maintenance. Uh, The workers obviously uh, were very, very angry around how that was uh, communicated to them, insofar as some of them really only heard it through the likes of yourselves, through the media. And uh, it was a deplorable situation that workers found themselves in. It's equally still continued in a deplorable situation insofar as uh, workers have been, you know, they're devastated with regard to how they are surviving with income. Um, and the 65 euros that you mentioned, that is part of an agreement that we uh, entered into with the company um, in, in July of this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we've now negotiated the extension of that 65. 
Uh, it's not what we ultimately wanted to do, but we have to try and protect uh, the workers as best we can. Uh, ultimately, our goal would be to get the mine open earlier. Uh, the €65 Euros is not going to do a lot for workers, um, even since the beginning of the summer months with the uh, step down in the rate of pay that these workers were on. The social welfare system is not uh, what we uh, would see as being the appropriate style for okay, any, John, work, John, I'll come to, any I'll, worker across the country. I will come to that in a moment, but I just want to perhaps get your view on the word temporary, which was used by the owners, Boyleton, back in June in relation to this closure. Are we now gone beyond temporary? Well, we will all, we said it from the outset that it was never going to be a temporary and it was wrongly uh, labelled and it's still wrongly labelled, but the company are holding on to that uh, that that's what it is because their intention is to reopen the mine uh, but it's not looking like as if it's going to happen in the media term uh, even though yesterday we did uh, apply pressure on the company and uh, they are now considering whether they can give us a date mm-hmm. uh, we applied the pressure insofar as they have um, licensing applications renewals um, that have been submitted since uh, November of last year uh, and uh, Minister Ryan's uh, office has been sitting on these applications, but they are to be renewed now at the end of November. And we have told the company that, that we believe that that is the appropriate date to recommence operations. John, can I ask you, in, in relation to what has happened globally Economically, it has had an impact, not just on tower mines, but on many organisations and businesses and multinationals. And they find themselves in the position where perhaps they wanted to open earlier, but they now can't do that because their situation has been exacerbated by what has happened outside of their control. Look, again, yes, you're right. That is the situation for a lot of other businesses as well. Uh, The mining business, uh, there is... um, a difficulty around not having any influence on how um, the price of uh, uh, zinc is set uh, and other things. The energy side of things is not in their control either. But we have been talking to uh, government uh, and in particular Minister Coveney in relation to a package uh, that should be brought forward to help open this mine Mm. up earlier. And uh, we've been you know, heavily engaged with the with 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 his department, and it is positive. Uh, the indicators are, but what they need, as much as uh, the workers do and the community uh, around the mine, uh, a date for recommencement. The government I... are willing to do something, but it it is all on the back of having a date for recommencement. So, in, in, in the cold yesterday. in the cold light of day, then, what are you saying that potentially we are witnessing perhaps the slow demise of Tara mines? No, I wouldn't go that far, Alan. Uh, there is a huge potential in that mine. Uh, we've had reasonably good um, engagement with the company throughout uh, since the announcement, and it's all on the back of there is a huge ore body. Uh, uh, and uh, in uh, Tara Deep, it's called, and that will provide up to forty years of mining. So this mine is going nowhere, uh, other than uh, it has to bounce back and get back into production uh, as early as possible. Before it does, 
it equally has to get um, mining development uh, up and running because it has to be at least two to three months ahead of production mm. in order to keep production going. So we're pressurising that situation that we at least get people back into development and start a roadmap and an agreement for how uh, people will be called back. Okay, well, that it's, it's my... It's, yeah, it's my understanding that from that meeting yesterday, pressure was put on management to come up with a date in order to get things rolling again in the mines and failure to do so would result in another hearing at the WRC. At what point will a decision be made by the unions to go back to the WRC? Well, we have told the company yesterday to give us an answer on Tuesday of next week uh, with regard to uh, the terms of reference that we are going to enter into negotiations on how operational issues that are within our control and the company's control to improve uh, uh, efficiencies and operations in there. So there's terms of reference to come to us Uh, on Monday or Tuesday of next week, we've equally told them that they have to come forward with a a tentative date even, but some indicator uh, with regard to when they see the mine opening up again. So they have committed to give us that on Tuesday. We've equally told them that failing to get a date or failing to get uh, a reasonable time frame for the recommencement and for, uh, um, for us to engage on the operational side of things, that if the date is acceptable, um, then we'll, we'll work with the companies immediately on them issues. But if it's pushed out so far that it's unrealistic, we are going to have to go back to the WRC and we've told them that we have a date for next Thursday. OK, let, talk to me a little bit about the notion of an external facilitator to assist in, in the process. Has somebody or some organisation being identified who can facilitate this? No, um, we haven't, and they, that's equally to come forward on Tuesday. The company are were really looking to see where we uh, up for um, negotiating in that way with a facilitator to assist the parties, um, and we obviously confirmed that we would, and we actually put the notion that maybe there should be a joint um, facilitation. We would nominate somebody, and the company would nominate somebody, and the two would work together because there's that many different functions of the mine operation, that it will require, um, you know, a lot, a lot of engagement to to address all um, issues around them functions. And we would be of the view that we would move quicker if we had two um, facilitators uh, accommodating them talks. What's your view in relation to where this is going to end from the point of view of Tara Mines? Do you believe there's something else going on in the background that they're just playing for time? No, I don't think that's the case. Uh, I think, uh, obviously, they, um, the market is dictating things. The price of uh, zinc is not going to move anywhere quick. Uh, but nevertheless, the government has a huge role to play here. And the fact that we are pressing for a date, because our engagement with the government since the announcement uh, has been really focused on what energy supports can be done, what uh, social uh, security for the workers can be done. And obviously, um, the government is saying uh, that they will only, uh, you know, really assist uh, and come forward with, with, with uh, proposals um, 
if there's a date for recommencement. Yeah, but you do accept, but you do accept, John, that that the government cannot intervene financially or otherwise long term in this. Well, again, we had um, earlier discussions with them pre the uh, layoffs, and they were looking for um, clearance from the EU, which we haven't concluded them talks. So I'm not sure where that's at. But yes, they are somewhat constrained in what they can do. But there is things that will help the company financially, such as royalties. There, that's an area that is within the government's um, own um, capabilities to mm-hmm. do something. Let and, me just, John, uh, I, I just need to ask you this because time is running out on us. Are yeah. you telling us here this morning that there is no danger of tar mines closing permanently? I can't say that. That's that's multinationals make up their own mind and they make it on the basis of is it viable, is it financially sound and what is the future prospects. As far as we're concerned, the company has told us they need the parent company to come in now as well and support any package and any return because the money is running out. There's no doubt about that. The loans that they received uh, earlier this year is only going to bring this mine, even under care and maintenance, to the end of the year. So we have a window of opportunity here to pressurise not just government, but also the parent company. And we made that quite clear yesterday to them, that we can absolutely roll in behind their business plan when they come forward with it. But in the meantime, we can do things around the operational side of things, which will help the parent company see that we are there for... Uh, you know, for the long term, we equally have to, uh, and we said this to the company yesterday, we will need a voluntary redundancy package that will uh, obviously assist workers that are desperately uh, in need of uh, funds at this moment in time. I just can't be left in limbo uh, for the company. So redundancy, a voluntary redundancy package has to get funded. So the funding of that has to come from the parent company. Okay. So we are we have to talk to all of these parties and bring them to some sort of an understanding that they have to step in with finance. Okay, we must leave it there. Sip two sector organizer John Reagan. Thank you for joining us this morning. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Uh, welcome back to the program. Irish archbishops are urging a cessation of violence in the Holy Land, respect of civilian populations, and the release of hostages. In a joint statement, the bishop said, "Over the past days, we've watched with shock and dismay the events that have unfolded in the land of the birth of our Lord. The ongoing." situation has caused great suffering to many innocent people on all sides in the present conflict. Now joining us this morning is Archbishop Dermot Farrell of Dublin, former parish priest of Dunboyne. Archbishop, thank you for taking our call this morning. As I speak to you, I'm watching pictures coming out of Gaza. They are horrific. We are looking at scenes of unimaginable horror and devastation. And it strikes me, and I say this with the greatest respect, that it's going to take more than prayers. It will take a miracle to ease the plight of the Palestinian people and bring an end to the savagery perpetrated by both sides, let it be said, in this conflict. Good morning, Alan, and good morning to your listeners. Uh, Absolutely, I I couldn't agree more with you. And, you know, the situation is deteriorating uh, by the day since uh, last Saturday when we started off with that horrific attack. Uh, on the the Jewish settlements down close to the southern Gaza 
you know, it was sheer butchery and I suppose the sheer horror of it has only emerged even, you know, in the last couple of days. Uh, it's been unfolding how horrific it was. You know, I was looking in the last yesterday evening at television uh, at Kim, Kim Dante's funeral and her mother, but also uh, another man talking about his daughter were saying, you know, he was glad that she, she was killed. It was just, you know, horrible listening to that. But what's happening on the other side equally now is just as horrific where a whole population who are effectively living in uh, Gaza is like a, a massive open-air prison that you can't escape from. Uh, it's one of the most densely populated areas on this planet, and now it's effectively been indiscriminately bombed. Uh, there's no respect for the citizens that live there. Uh, they've been cut off from all of the, the basic necessities of life. It's a collective punishment uh, of the civilians. Uh, the, there's a siege going on. Water has been cut off. Electricity mm -hmm. has been cut off. Food has been cut off. And just looking at the pictures of young, innocent children and people that are, are caught up in this conflict and the way they're being treated is just... Uh, it's beyond uh, description. Okay, Archbishop, you do nonetheless respect a sovereign state's position to protect themselves Absolutely. and their people against terrorism. And that's what was happening last Saturday by Hamas terrorists when they attacked southern Israel. Correct. Um, they're, they're every uh, A sovereign state has the right uh, to... Uh, it has, first of all, Israel is universally recognised as a state and has a right to exist and has a right to enjoy peace and security within what are defined as, if you like, internationally recognised borders. But likewise, it has to be acknowledged, I think, that the Palestinian people have a right to sovereign, independent homeland and to live and to be able to travel freely. Um, now, what happened last Saturday can in no sense be justified. Absolutely not. And there is a right, we have a right to life and we have a right to defend our lives when we are attacked. But two wrongs don't make a right. To perpetrate uh, another effectively evil on the other side doesn't, uh, you know, can't be justified either. That's all uh, very well, but when you see citizens of your state being slaughtered by terrorists, there is an expectation that you will react in a manner that will assuage the fears of your people and know that they are being protected by the government that they elected to protect them. Yes, but what we have now is that uh, we have the, the statements coming out of Israel that the intention here is to wipe you know, Hamas off the face of the earth. Uh, and I think when you get that sort of rhetoric, if you like, uh, that that rhetoric doesn't help uh, to bring any sort of peace or justice to the situation. Uh, and it only ab absolutely adds fuel uh, to the situation. And we know from our own situation here in the country where the British government tried to wipe uh, the Republican movement, the array off the face of the earth, that that sort of philosophy and rhetoric never works. In fact, it only adds fuel to the fire. Where do you see this ending if there is no immediate negotiated solution or even an agreement to allow humanitarian aid into Gaza? I see it as being a, an utter and total disaster uh, from the point of view of the, both from the point of view of the Palestinian people and from the uh, Israeli people. I see the consequences of it. Basically, that thousands and thousands of innocent people are going to be killed on both sides. Um, that it's not going to bring justice to the situation and that it will continue because that's, if you look at the history, what, you know, this has been going on since 1948, mm -hmm. um, you know, when the 
the State of Israel was established. And intermittently, over many, many years, going back to 67 and the various intifadas, we have had uh, numerous uh, wars and skirmishes where people have lost their lives. Of course, it has its roots if you go back further. Where, where you know, you want to think about the roots of this conflict, they're to be found probably in the 19th century. Uh, you think of what somebody like Lord Shaftesbury said uh, in the 19th century when he was talking about the lad. He talked about it as being a land without a people for a land for a people without a land. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, ex- you, you but know, but that wasn't actually true. Yeah. You know, that the Archbishop, true. though, that all all roads ultimately in conflicts such as these lead back to religion. No, that, I don't think that's. Uh, you know, religion is being brought in here uh, unnecessarily and unfairly. It's not actually the, the root cause. Both sides are invoking um, the religious dimension to, in other words, they're, they're sort of playing the card. And there is no doubt that religion plays a, a, a role, but political leaders and ideologues use religion in conflict, and it's not the core of the problem. Uh, there have been many periods, if you look at the history of, of the Palestine, where Muslims and Jews and Christians have actually lived side by side in a very peaceful coexistence. And they have contributed in various ways to the, the civilizations. But what you have today is you have ideologues, you have politicians. Uh, that what they're doing is they're actually mobilized religion to promote the rejection of the other people. And there is a, a whole dehumanization of a whole... Uh, nation in effect uh, and they're ignoring the rights of others and what the, there, there's a campaign effectively to esting, extinguish other another a whole class okay. of people well, well on the basis of that then and what you have witnessed and what we've all witnessed do you think there is an argument for the likes of Benjamin Netanyahu and Benny Gantz to stand trial for war crimes yes there's no doubt that, uh, that Hamas have committed war crimes and there's no doubt that there's war crimes now being committed on the other side. And will be. And there are more war crimes, I'm sure, will be committed in the coming days. And, you know, but the interesting thing about all of that is you have somebody like the Americans, you know, who uh, are looking for war crimes to be prosecuted in Ukraine, but not uh, when it comes to Israel. So there isn't uh, equanimity there in terms of, you know, the, the superpowers. And really, this needs to be solved, not just by the Israelis and the Palestinians, but the superpowers need to come in um, and put the pressure on to get a just solution. And until there is a just solution, uh, and I don't know what that solution is, the two-state solution now seems to be a dream um, that's not attainable. And I suppose what people are pitching more now for is that there might be equality. Mm. Can I ask you, Archbishop, what does it say about humanity that we allow this to happen, that so-called educated, right-minded people would sit back and press a button and we're now left with this catastrophe, this murder on both sides? Isn't that what humanity has been doing? You know, it goes back, you look at the Second World War, you look at what happened in Russia in 1917 and thereafter, you look at Bosnia-Herzegovina, you look at the north of Ireland. Man becomes more savage than the animals when they, when they turn on each other. Uh, I don't know what it's, it's within, uh, the, the, you know, even neighbours, members of the same family, absolutely savage each other sometimes uh, when they turn on each other in these situations. We saw it in our own civil war. The brutality is beyond description. You see it in Ukraine and Russia today as well. 
And ultimately, and I think Pope John Paul II said it, at the end of every conflict, all that remains is a table on a stage surrounded by chairs. And that's what will ultimately happen here, that somebody will have to sit down and negotiate. Somebody will have to, every war ends in a negotiation, and I suppose what people are trying to do is trying to stake out territory for that negotiation, and that's partly what's going on today in in the Holy Land, where uh, more and more land has been confiscated, more and more uh, refugees created, and that's where the Gaza Strip came out of. It came out of the Nabka in 1948, when when 700,000 Palestinians were corralled into that strip. Okay, and we, we see the consequences yep. of that today. We must leave it there. Archbishop Dermot Farrell of Dublin okay. and former parish thank priest of Dunboyne, thank you for taking our call this morning. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Uh, welcome back to the programme. A couple of comments I want to get through. I'll do that before hopefully we get to the uh, top of the hour, but I want to stay with the events which are unfolding in Gaza. We're joined by Independent Senator Jared Crockwell and former army man on the phone uh, this morning. Jared, thanks for taking our call this morning. Looking as uh, you probably probably are at the pictures and the news and the announcement by Israel to the people in northern Gaza to move out in 24 hours. Is it rhetoric? Is it psychological warfare? Or is there something afoot there, do you think? Uh, Good morning, Alan, and good morning to your listeners. Um, Be sure of this. It is not rhetoric. Uh, The Israelis don't do rhetoric. Uh, So my view is that this is a really serious move um, by Israel uh, against Hamas. And I mean, I think all of us will condemn what Hamas did at the weekend, but I'm not sure starving uh, an entire population of about two million people in Gaza is the way to go. Now, it's gone beyond Hamas at this stage. I mean proportionality doesn't really come into it in terms of this conflict. So I presume the end game on the part of the Israelis is to ethnically cleanse Gaza, push them out into Egypt. It looks very much like something like that is on the cards. The sad fact of the matter is Egypt won't take them. The West Bank won't take them. Nobody really wants the inhabitants of the Gaza Strip. And, um, you know, I mean, we have two million people there. A million or 1.1 million have been ordered to move south. Move where south? There is nowhere. Um, So Hamas have a huge amount of responsibility for what's happening. But the Israelis now must operate within humanitarian guidelines and within international law. Can you explain to me, because I haven't been able to figure this one out, Jared, what was the end game on the part of Hamas when they undertook this murderous campaign last Saturday? Surely they should have known that when you poke or injure the bear, they will come at you with guns blazing, which is what the Israelis have done. Alan, I'm I'm very confused about what happened at the weekend. The Israelis are known for having the greatest intelligence system in the world. Uh, How Hamas uh, managed to keep this potential or this terrible attack silent, how they managed to amass the amount of weapons that they have without Israel knowing is uh, a question that's going to have to be asked in the fullness of time. Uh, I think that the end game is going on here between both sides. Hamas have as you rightly put it, poked the bear to see what the outcome will be. And unfortunately, all of us in the Western world know exactly what the outcome will be. Perhaps Hamas thought that other uh, agents in the Middle East would join the campaign. And we're not sure yet that that mightn't happen.
Well, by all accounts, they were perhaps hoping on the support from the Iranian-backed Hezbollah in Lebanon. That doesn't seem to be happening, albeit we had a couple of missiles uh, launched across the border into Israel Israel by Hezbollah, which there was uh, due retaliation. So it doesn't like there's any movement there. Yeah, there's no love lost between Hamas and Hezbollah, and that's widely known. But at the end of the day, if Israel moves as it appears it's going to, uh, boots on the ground in the Gaza Strip uh, to cleanse certainly the northern half of Gaza, um, I wonder, will Hezbollah sit silent and allow that to happen? My fear is that they won't. And um, the last time Hezbollah and Israel uh, went toe-to-toe, Israel got a bloody nose from Hezbollah. Uh, So there is a huge potential for this to move through the West Bank uh, and to have Israel fighting on two fronts. So what are you saying? We'll see a situation like we saw back in the 80s when the Israelis trapped the Palestinians in Beirut and that just went so horribly wrong. Exactly. That's that's the great fear, Alan. The great fear here is that Israel is now so angry, uh, they don't care what anybody in the world is saying. They have no interest in listening to humanitarian pleas. They have no interest in humanitarian issues. They are prepared by the looks of things right now, to starve the uh, people in the Gaza Strip of food, of electricity, of water, all of the things that are required for life. Uh, So I believe the escalation is going to be massive. I believe that the ground attack that's about to start will be absolutely massive. With the support of the Americans, with the support of the majority of European countries. When would you anticipate that support will begin to dilute? I think, Alan, as soon as people start to see women and children being murdered, um, the the anger that's felt right now towards Hamas will move towards Israel. Uh, Israel will lose support once public opinion begins to die down. They have had all, as you rightly point out, all of the Western world has come out and said Israel uh, has a right to defend itself. And I think all of us listening to this program would agree they have a right to defend themselves. But defending yourself and engaging in murder, starvation, in the most horrendous atrocities, I'm not so sure the Western world can stomach that. Which begs my next question. How different is Benjamin Netanyahu and Benny Gantz compared to Ratko Mladic or Slobodan Milosevic? And I say that in the context of the siege of Sarajevo and what happened there. Yeah, um, Netanyahu is a man in trouble, and we all know that. He's in trouble in his own country. There's various inquiries into him. This is his get-out-of-jail card. This is his opportunity to show his people that he's a strong leader. And with that sort of background, um, you would wonder, um, certainly from the Netanyahu side, you would wonder just how far he's prepared to go to show just how strong he is. Of course, the opposition leader uh, who has joined forces with him um, would be in exactly the same thing. This is a game of politics within uh, Israel, sadly. And um, when politics and war uh, meet, we see atrocities. And that's what we're going to see, I have no doubt. This, no doubt, will be a protracted conflict. There's no question about that. Um, And usually it begins with bombardment from the air, from the sea and from land to, as they say, soften up the people of Palestine. 
At what point do you think we will see, as you call it, boots on the ground? I think within the next 24 to 48 hours, the tanks have already arrived at the border. They've given the local population 24 hours to get out. Uh, Sadly, a lot of Hamas people will leave with the ordinary population. Hamas has been very good at throwing their own people uh, under the truck um, for their own political purposes. But I think the ground attack is going to start very soon. The bombardment of of, um, Gaza, Alan, has been absolutely terrible. Can you imagine little children going to bed every night listening to explosion after explosion after explosion? They will absolutely wipe out the northern half of Gaza and it wouldn't surprise me then if they went south and as you put it, ethnically cleanse the place totally. You will remember the bombardment um, during the Iraqi conflicts shock and awe and uh, Operation Desert Storm they pale into insignificance when you have witnessed and seen the bombardment from the air by the by the Israelis. Is that fair comment? I think it is. I think the Israeli uh, war machine has tar- uh, ideally, uh, what would you call it, GPS-led missiles. They can take a house out on a street uh, or they can take an entire accommodation or apartment block out. The sad fact of the matter is Hamas will use their own people as a shield and they will take over one apartment in maybe a 50-block uh, 50 apartment. And the Israeli response to that is to take out the entire apartment block. So I think we've already seen images from uh, Palestine, from, from uh, Gaza, where entire streets have been razed to the ground. I think you're going to see the entire north razed to the ground. There will be nothing left standing. I think it's important as well, just before we leave it, Jared, is to not overestimate the support that Hamas has within the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. Yeah, absolutely, Alan. I mean, with the response that Israel is about to embark on now, it will be the greatest recruitment drive for Hamas in recent years. Uh, Young men who know nothing of the past uh, relationship between Hamas and Israel will now have a whole new uh, history to live with, and they will see the injustice of, of what's happening to their people from their perspective, and we know from our own campaign in here in Northern Ireland, uh, young people are influenced by violence uh, in the name of uh, nationhood and sovereignty and all that is wrong with the world. And I think Israel needs to be very okay. careful. They are now building a huge anger against them. Okay, Jared Crockwell, Independent Senator, thank you for joining us this morning. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, school principals will be calling on the Minister for Education to give a commitment that funding will be available for the administration of the latest free school book scheme. The call comes as a survey revealed that more than half of post-primary principals report stress or burnout due to what they say is administrative overload. Norma Foley announced that €67 million Euro in funding will be provided for school books and classroom resources for junior cycle students in Budget 20. Before uh, coming on air, I spoke to Paul Crone, director at the National Association of Principals and Deputies, and asked him, first of all, how the stress of administration is impacting on principals and students. Well, this isn't a new phenomenon. We started collecting data on this in 2015, and then we took a break and started collecting data again in 2022, and then again this year. So what we've noticed is that the administrative burden on school principals has has grown dramatically. 
from things like plant management, human resources, financial management, compliance, procurement, all of the, the things that are, are core to the successful running of the school, but they take away from the professionalism of the principal to focus on what they're qualified in, which is teaching and learning. So we want to try and reimagine leadership, and that's, that's what our conference is about, reimagining the leadership to move towards leading learning. And in order to do that, we're asking the minister to remove the administrative board that is not related to mm-hmm. teaching and learning. Now, that comes at a cost because you will require from the department and the minister funding in order to put in place somebody or some initiative to pick up that administration currently taken on by the school principals. That's not going to happen. Well, we will be hopeful that it will happen. We've had a working group with the department on it since 2018, and and that culminated in a proposal for a school administrative officer, and it requires a slight shift in in the thinking. To be fair, we need to to allow schools to be considered as a business, because they are a business, and they have plant, and they have uh, finance, and, and they have human resource issues. So we need to be able to, to, to reimagine that the school is a business. Um, and if, if the school that I was principal, which had approximately 1,000 pupils, 100 staff, if I was a, a chief executive of a small or medium enterprise, I would have a human resource manager, a plant manager, and a finance manager. But that's all the principal. So what we're saying is the capacity in the system is, is, is at maximum. So in, initiatives like the, the school books, which is, are very welcome and will be a huge support to principals or to, to parents, we don't have the capacity at this stage to take on more initiatives unless other things give way, and that's the administrative uh, officer that we're looking to, to implement. And that will create significant capacity in the system, and we believe from our work and our research, that if that is in place, we will see significant growth in our education system and the quality of our education system. Now, in defence of the Department of Education, when the initiative was introduced around school books last year for primary schools, they did provide grant aid for administrative work. Was that sufficient in your experience? And what was the level of feedback from those who had to administer the scheme and did it run smoothly? Now, we have to take it... Primary is very different from post-primary. So the, 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 the book scheme in, in primary appears to have worked reasonably well. But you have maybe got 24, 25 students in a class with one teacher. Post-primary, you might have eight or nine teachers with one student. You could have taster programs. You could have iPad schools. You could have online books. Oh, the, the, it's a much more complex issue. That may be so, but we are where we are and it's being rolled out and it's being rolled out on the basis of the success of what had happened in primary. So where do you see the pitfalls and do you see a smooth transition for next year for this scheme to be rolled out? And that's why we want to engage with the minister and her officials to make sure that there is sufficient administrative support to roll to roll this out properly. Now, who you would get to do it, I don't know. You might get the secretary in the school. It could be a teacher. But we're very clear that this work is work that is done during the summer months, not while the school is open, because when you open on the 1st of September, the books need to be ready. 
so that we we would be uh, I suppose putting it out there that that the position needs to be sufficiently remunerated to reflect the quality of the work or the quantity of the work that is is required and and we're looking forward to engaging with the minister's officials around that now there are no better individuals than yourselves to understand the requirements around putting a scheme like this in place and its smooth transition and the cost of doing same so what what sort of level of funding have you got in mind to discuss with the minister well well, first of all, the, 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 the way the primary one has, has rolled out, um, it was a daily rate. And you have to remember, of course, that most of... Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. The, the teachers, even the, the secretaries, would be on the top rate of tax. So that needs to be reflected in the remuneration of the administrative um, funding. So that if, if you're offering somebody a lower rate, they're going to pay tax at 42% on it. So that needs to be reflected on it. We also need to do um, a, a due diligence review to see how many days do we think it's going to take. And we will put together a crew of, of principals from particularly large schools who are going to have uh, uh, I suppose the most work to do and, and just ask them and particularly schools that operate uh, book rental schemes they know how long it takes they know how many days they know what the requirement is so we'll be collating all of that information we will be uh, communicating that to the minister and our officials and we, we, we hope to be successful because we cannot continue to uh, load principals and deputies with more administration now, there's two parts to this. The first part in relation to rolling out the uh, school books and the second part is the long-term proposition around funding of administrative work. So will it be acceptable for your members to take on board some sort of financial recompense to get us through the rollout of these school books and then let's negotiate separately over a long-term proposition around administration? Well, I know a minister at, at our conference last year acknowledged the administrative burden on school leaders, and, and she's due with us um, again. And, and, we, and we will be looking for that acknowledgement and that, that commitment that gives us hope and, and that, that, that this will be addressed in the, the, the short to medium term. 
And and on the basis of that, I, I, I think principals and deputies would be content to roll it out because they see the value um, of the, the, the school books uh, for parents and for families. So it's a worthwhile initiative. So we, we, we would be happy. We just need to look for that commitment from the minister that this is not a job complete. Can I ask you about that funding announced uh, by the Minister for the Scheme? Do you think that is sufficient in the context of what is required by students up to that level? Well, we, we, we had a, a crew of principals yesterday who were, were sitting down with pens and papers and trying to work out what, what it, it would cost. And the, the, the general consensus was that it, it, would, it would be sufficient. Um, so we, we would be hopeful. And, and let's see, we need to, again... The devil is in the detail. We need to look and see what per student, what is administration, what is included, is stationary calculators. And are so you are you any closer to understanding what is included in that on the basis of maybe yet. private conversations? Or when will you know? Well, we, we, we hope to know in, in the coming weeks because schools will have to plan and schools will have to prepare. And I know it's not until uh, next September, but if you were to have procurement done, if you're to have the people in place, we, we need to be planning. So we, we need we need to know in, in, in the next number of weeks what the exact arrangements are. And the department, I'm sure, will issue a circular with all of the details. And we, we certainly uh, should be consulted or will be consulted on the, the draft circular to feed into that to make sure that it's workable. Are you of the view that Norma Foley rolled this out too quickly, that she should have allowed the first initiative to bed in a little bit more? No, I, I mean, we, to be honest, we were expecting it. Um, I, I think she made no secrets of it. It's not; it didn't catch us off guard. Um, but in order, in order to, I suppose, achieve what you want to achieve, you have to keep moving forward. So, so we were expecting this, and, and it wasn't a huge shock to us. Um, yes, we we we've engaged with our primary colleagues, the Irish Primary Principals Network, to see how it's working. For, for primary schools and we want to take that learning and, and apply it to post-primary schools. So, no, I don't, I, I think the timing is, is, is probably okay. Do you have a view around the exclusion of private schools in relation to this scheme? I, I don't, I don't, I don't have, have a view, to be honest. Um, we would have a lot of, of private schools, um, the fee-charging schools in, in, our, in our membership, and I do know that, that many of them are, are having financial issues as well as, as other schools. So um, that, that's a political uh, decision and not one that, that really I, I would be taking a view on. Let me just go back to that survey again. Can you give us some sort of insight into the effects negatively that it's having on students particularly? I can, of course. What, what what we noticed and what the survey reported was in 2023, 52% of principals and deputies were taking prescribed medication. In 2023, that's come up to 58% um, of, of principals and deputies are taking prescribed medication. Uh, 42% of them have a diagnosed medical condition. A lot of the, the most common would be respiratory, blood pressure, um, which are, are a direct uh, correlation with, with stress our prolonged stress. So, we, but what's interesting is the survey also uh, identified that principals and deputies are really positive about the job and the efficacy of what they can achieve. So what we're saying is there's a short window 
the principals and deputies are really positive. They feel they're making a difference for their students. Yet, we're also identifying that it is having an impact on them. And we've noticed that early retirements are, are gone up. So we have a short window to, to address this before we lose the positivity and we lose the, um, the, <clears throat> the attitude of the can-do attitude that exists among principals and deputies. Okay, so how then, therefore, is that stress permeating down and in, uh, reflecting on students? They are clearly not benefiting in the manner in which they should be from an educational perspective if principals and if teachers are under this level of stress. Uh, absolutely. And, and I mean, the, as a principal, and, and principals were generally appointed, they may have been probably one of the best teachers in the school. They were... Uh, excellent teachers. So then they're promoted up in, 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 into this role. So what we would like them to be able to do is to prioritise leading learning, prioritise conversations with teachers, the improvement plans to make sure that teachers are supported in, in, in every aspect of their work, that they can interact with students, they can interact with parents, that they can build that positive culture, all of which takes time. It takes uh, development of interpersonal relationships. But as long as the principal is dragged into the office and into paperwork, they can't, they can't do that. They can't prioritise the relationships in the school. And that's what we see as, as the problem for, for students. Teachers are left a, a little bit unsupported by their, their, their principal because they can't get out to, 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 to support them and foster and develop those relationships, which in turn impact on the the student-teacher relationship and the student experience in the school. Very good. Before I leave you, um, Paul Crone, can I just ask you in relation to the Minister's address to your conference this morning, what do you hope to hear from her? What do you want to say to her? Well, we'll be pointing out to her, I suppose, the three biggest issues impacting on school leadership at the moment. Firstly, teacher shortages. Uh, secondly, uh, financial pressures in schools, and thirdly, the administrative, and most importantly, the administrative burden on school leaders. So what, what we're looking for is an acknowledgement, and, and we're looking for a commitment that we will work together and, and collaborate and work towards a solution. Very good. We leave there. Paul Crone, Director at the National Association of Principals and Deputies. Thank you for joining us this morning. Michael Reed on LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. A row has broken out between RTE and the Public Accounts Committee over certain details of a meeting which took place in May 2020. The details are contained in a note of the meeting between former RTE Director General D. Forbes and Ryan Tubridge's agent Noel Kelly where the deal related to the payment scandal was agreed. RTE has refused to bring the note to the committee, citing legal advice. However, Committee Chair Brian Stanley told RTE Director General Kevin Backhurst yesterday it will use its powers to compel RTE to hand it over. We'll be joined momentarily by Sinn Féin's Imelda Munster, who sits on that committee. But this is what Labour's Alan Kelly had to say. To be fair, up until now, Mr Backhurst, you have done a reasonably good job. However... This is a pivotal moment for you. And I changed my stance today, literally in the last hour, on the basis of the response you gave to the chair this morning, at the very, very end of the contribution. Because you said, uh, when he asked, and we said we compel that document, and uh, we've articulated why it's so important, uh, we, we will stand ready for that. This is too confrontational. We'll stand ready for it. Second thing you said is you'd like to see our legal advice. This isn't a two-way relationship. 
It's a two-way relationship in relation to being courteous, in relation to how we uh, respect one another and support one another. It is not a two-way relationship as regards you get to see our legal advice, because you don't. Because this is the Oireachtas. We're the people elected. We're the people who have to vote on whether we give you money. The taxpayers are watching this. So you don't get to see our legal advice. You should withdraw that. Right? This is a pivotal moment for you. There's a moral issue here. Right? My colleagues have articulated better than I can. But I'm telling you this. If it ends up in a scenario whereby this goes through, where we have to compel this, it could end up legal, it could end up in the courts, your position won't be tenable. I'm sorry. I actually think you're doing a good job up until now. I think you need to reflect. In fact, we're taking a break soon. I think you need to reflect during that break. Because I don't believe in a scenario where you should be in and out of here every couple of months. I actually wanted to end today. But we can't end until this is provided. Because the worries and concerns of this committee and the people watching are so severe that if you do not provide this note, I think yourself, Mr Lynch and others will have serious issues into the future. Labour's Alan Kelly addressing the Public Accounts Committee yesterday. Imelda Munster also sits on that committee and joins us uh, from Sinn Féin. Uh, Imelda, this is turning into a circus. We're getting nowhere. We've been in and out of this committee on numerous occasions and we still cannot wade through the fog of what is going on in RTE. What is the point of this? Well, the point is to get, is to get to the truth, Alan, and to find out exactly what was going on in RTE. That document, and it's a key document, um, relates to the May of 2020 when there was a, a Teams meeting regarding the setting up of the tripartite agreement. That was the three payments of 75,000 paid to Ryan Tuberty, and that's where they discussed that tripartite mm-hmm. agreement and how the payments would be processed. And we've, we requested the, that key document at the end of June, and we again requested it in, in July. RTE refused at the time, claimed it was legally privileged, but the RTE have the power to waive that privilege. They're now claiming that it was governed by client confidentiality. In other words, a solicitor giving advice to a party, but that argument doesn't okay. actually stand up. R- r- right, let, let, let's, let's just wind mm. back here, Imelda. They were never going to provide you with that note and they were going to do everything in their power to suppress it. The onus, therefore, should have been on the committee to immediately seek legal advice and go through the courts to get that document, not going back to RTE and saying, can you get it for us, lads, the next time? Can you get it for us the next time? Those days are over. We need that document. Well, that's true too. But at the same time, you give them every opportunity to produce the document. And since the new Director General has come in and promised transparency and accountability and oversight at every level, we would have thought that that would have meant furnishing us with all the documents. But what they've left out is a key document. So clearly there's something they don't want us to know. The the honeymoon is over here on this, Imelda, surely. I mean, it's time now to get the gloves off on it. Yeah, well, that's what we're going to to compel the document because they can't continue to hide documents, particularly if they want the the public to ever 
trust them again. And this was an opportunity to create or rebuild that trust. You know, at the same time, they're looking for bailouts. Um, so they, I sat there yesterday, tried the meeting, and I couldn't believe, I actually was saying to myself, you're really doing yourselves no favours at all. And there was a whole range of issues discussed from exit packages to RTE being insolvent by next spring and um, the license fee shortfall, what they're spending on the report. OK, that carrying I'm going to get to your I, I want to get to your contribution, but I want to do it um, in sequence. Let's let, let's start with the exit package of Breda O'Keefe. We spoke about mm-hmm. the fog that surrounds that and so many other yeah. issues. We are nowhere closer to understanding the rationale behind that when the position wasn't made redundant and there was no saving. Mm-hmm. That's that's the, one of the issues I raised yesterday, that she got the exit pack, package, even though she wasn't entitled to it, because, as you said, the position wasn't made redundant. But also the, the chief financial officer that resigned this week, he also got some form of package, and they wouldn't divulge what that was, but he actually resigned. So normally if you resign from something, you don't get a package. And when they said that um, usually when I asked about Breda O'Keefe getting the exit package that she wasn't entitled to, they said, oh, they need to make 80% savings. But um, I had asked then, was uh, O'Keefe on 80% less than Mr. Collins when he came in? And they said that the savings were made elsewhere, but offered no evidence whatsoever. And they have, they're paying um, McCann Fitzgerald uh, to do up a report on the voluntary exit packages and I asked in particular because that's the only way people are going to see that there is proper transparency and people held or can't ask are they going to recoup that money because that money was paid to somebody who wasn't entitled to it someone who was on an exceptionally high salary and were they going to recoup that money and they wouldn't give an answer they said they're waiting on the report I cannot understand Imelda I cannot understand nor can my listeners understand how an organisation that we are funding is not being wholesome in terms of their answers to pretty basic questions. There is no accountability here. And it strikes me that the Public Accounts Committee cannot get that accountability from RTE either. That is is disgraceful because we are funding RTE. Oh, exactly. Look, it's, it's, I mean, you have to try, bite your tongue at times to hold your temper. But that's not good it, enough. It is it, not no, good know, enough. And it would that. not be acceptable in any other organisation. In the private sector, it would not be acceptable. Exactly. And the other thing is when they were crying poverty, saying they'll be insolvent by spring of next year, I know I had no sympathy for them. And I certainly wouldn't be support, supporting bailing them out until we get all of the information that we've requested until we get to the root and the bottom of this, until that culture, and it's still there. You could see it yesterday. It's still there. It's bred into that organisation that they can do what they want with public money, they can get away with what okay. they want with public money, and they're answerable to nobody. Right, well, and we know... that changes. Yeah, yeah. We, we know that there is a financial deficit there, and we're getting to a point where it'll be a point of no return financially for the organisation. What the taxpayer wants to hear is a cast-iron commitment that no money will be handed over to RTE until a report is landed on a desk, and it is forensically examined, and it is held up to scrutiny that we will give over the money on the basis of what is in that report and more importantly what is going to be implemented in that report we want to guarantee that that's going to happen 
Well, in their, the the Director General's opening statement yesterday, he said that um, RTE hopes to provide an outline framework for um, reform around the end of this month, right? And he said there'd be a commitment then to delivering a detailed and costed statement of strategy by early next year. Well, personally, I don't think they should get one cent until we see the detailed and costed Hang on a second. Are, are we countenancing the notion that we are going to give them some sort of financial lifeline until we get that report? Well, the, no. I think, in fairness, the minister said, because she's seen what's been going on, she did say that until she sees the checks and balances are in place, um, that they won't be getting funding, but the additional funding that they require. But, you know, if they provide a framework for strategic reform, that means absolutely nothing and i definitely think that until we get their statement of strategy with details costings etc that they can't get another cent because as yet from what i saw yesterday they've learned absolutely nothing and another big major scandal is the bogus self-employment um that when there's 695 workers Yeah, I'll come to that in a moment, but I think it's very, very important just to emphasise the amount of money which has been put by that was put Mm. into the actual figure which RTE claim they have. They actually have 20 million less because that has been allocated towards that particular case. Yes, they've less than 50 million to do them until spring. But that was the first time when I asked them how much money had they set aside to pay revenue, that was the first time they actually put on record a figure. Um, he said first, oh, we can't give that figure, and then I pressed it, and they said just under £20 million set aside. But the sickening thing in all of that is they've set aside that money for revenue. They've already had to pay revenue £1.2 million because the scope exercise is going on from the Department of Social Protection into PRSI that should have been paid to staff that was never paid. And Think about this. This is this is a public broadcaster in receipt of funding, public funding, and they're treating workers in this way. But they they've already paid 1.2 million. Now they've set aside because they know these cases um, are coming through because Scope is investigating them. They set aside 20 million to pay revenue because by law they'll have to pay revenue. But they haven't set aside one cent for workers that were denied their basic entitlements, like holiday pay, sick leave, pension rights. They've denied them their entitlements as workers and they haven't set aside a penny. And actually, I had got wind of the word at the the meeting the day before that the Director General had with the staff of RTE and had said um, correcting the wrong with financial compensation for workers uh, would bankrupt RTE, so it will not happen. So they're actually saying... To hell with the workers. We're not going to compensate them for those years. And this goes back into the 1980s. Um, They're not going to compensate them for them. Yet they can give exit packages, massive exit packages, to the top execs who weren't even entitled to it. But they can't actually compensate workers for missing out on pension rights and holiday pay and sick leave. I mean, it's... It's staggering. Okay, two questions, Imelda, before I go. First off, is there a case for incremental funding on a drip feed basis in relation to a report that's delivered and what is implemented from that report, you get money based on that? Or do we just hand over the goodies to them? No, no, absolutely not. I mean, we didn't go through all of this 
and you've seen it was like extracting teeth at each committee meeting. And if you have, to, if you're going to get accountability, you have to stick with it till the better end. And until we see their detailed strategic plan on reform, accountability, and oversight, they shouldn't get assent, and they should be aware of that. And what they did yesterday was they they set themselves back to, to square one, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I know that, Amel, but what I'm saying is, if we agree that this is the plan going forward, should we just incrementally fund that plan going forward as opposed to just writing a cheque for the full amount? Well, I'm not sure. That will be a decision made by the minister. But if the minister, you know, sits through that committee meeting um Yesterday, if she sits down to to look over it again, she'll see exactly what we saw. Okay, that there's nothing, there's not nothing, and she'll have to make that decision. Right. But you know, again, I'll come back to those exit packages. People see that the the top earners are given those exit packages. They walk away. Those that retired as well during the midst of the and, and you made that point. And, and, and the workers, come. the workers don't get them. Imelda, the I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to have to leave it there because we're running out of time. Sinn Féin is Imelda Munster who sits on the Public Accounts Committee. Thanks for joining us. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Welcome back. I want to stay with that story on the Public Accounts Committee and RTE. Paul Allen has a PR professional of Paul Allen and Associates. He's worked for RTE for 15 years, from TV sound to continuity, to the RTE newsroom as a journalist and joins us uh, this morning on the programme. Paul, thanks for taking our, our call this morning. Uh, Kevin, Kevin Backhurst, there's no question, was a chastened man yesterday after the bruising he encounters he had, particularly with Alan Kelly. Do you expect he's thinking what have I taken on here well good morning Alan and uh, I just think I know it's Friday the 13th um, and this is certainly horrific to the poor listener good morning they've had this for the last five months uh, and really unless an axe-wheeling psycho accountant is brought in the place is going to hit the rocks by Christmas time Um, we all remember the TV series with Logan Roy saying these are not serious people these are not serious people Um, And in a business sense, you would say to someone, well, is there an adult in the room? There is not an adult in the room. Um, These are genius television makers, program makers. They win awards. But can they run this place? They cannot run the place. And if I can just present a picture for you for a moment, you can imagine in Toy Town. Toy Town has granted a license to a TV and radio station to broadcast. They're broadcasting for the last 60 odd years They've got the license fee from the people of Toy Town. In addition to that, they've also got money from TV advertising. And guess what? They've lost money. It's unheard of to be running a business and losing money at the rate they're running. Kevin Backhurst, he's a great man. He needs to step aside and put somebody in who can sort the place out. Well, who is that person who can sort it out? David McRedmond was touted as being one of the individuals formerly of TV3 and now with Unpost. Was he the sort of calibre of individual we need in there? Well, McRedmond is a star player. Look at how he's turned the post business around. He's a phenomenal businessman. And maybe the case was, maybe he was the uh, the wrong shade, the wrong guy. Maybe he was maybe a bit too aggressive with his messaging in the Sunday business post for one. Or maybe there was too many stories going around. Let's say somebody needs to come in here with an axe, not a program maker. Um, and Mike Redmond is the man. He sorted on post out. Um, and I, I just feel that at the moment, while Kevin is a great, great broadcaster and a really nice man, the sea is getting very choppy. And as I said a moment ago, this is going to hit the rocks very shortly. If I can just also give an example, 
like the show that will never hit the stage again, the, 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 the Late Late Toy Show, the Toy Show, the musical. They are storing the props for a show that will never, ever see the light of day. Somebody should get a box of matches and just set the whole thing on fire. Destroy it. Get rid of it. It's costing the state. It's costing you and me money to store props for a show that's never going to see the light of day. It's bonkers. Paul, can I ask you this question? You and I have been around some time. We've listened to previous director generals. generals. We've listened to, I don't know, producers, news editors in RTE telling us about the fabulous changes that they're going to make within the organisation. Yeah. It's going to become Someone leaner, meaner. Scripts for them. Nothing has happened. Everything remains the same. Yeah, absolutely. And and But the light of day... They have they're, they're they're in debt for sixty one million to the listener this morning the small business person who's worrying about the cost of living the, the the family worrying about the cost of living how can they afford Christmas the fuel costs you cut your corners sorry son we cannot buy you a Ferrari and if you look at the situation just this week another example for you in Morning Ireland. I thought was, I was chuckling away to myself. Morning Ireland, they had the Minister for Finance on and one of the presenters was banging the table and said, you know, how are you going to sort the problem in RTE? The presenter of Morning Ireland is on more money than the Taoiseach. The Taoiseach's salary is 230,000 odd. The presenter is on 249,000 odd. Like that doesn't make sense. And if you look at the former Late Late Show presenter, he was on what, around 500 grand? The President of the United States is around 400,000. So it's completely off off kilter. But the reality is we have allowed this disconnect to continue for decades, Paul, and have done nothing about it. Is there a fear amongst the uh, amongst the government, every government, to try and do battle with RTE? Well, there's a touch of that. There's, as we all know, there's a few elections coming down the pipe and they're a bit scared. Um, some of us would think that during the COVID during the COVID period, that RTE was an echo chamber for government. Sometimes when you watch the six and the nine o'clock news, they seem to be gurgitating the same story. Uh, they're brokenhearted. And it's the people who I have worked with in the newsroom who are looking and wondering what their futures are. The situation is the place is understaffed. They don't have a Dublin editor. Uh, they're just chronically uh, imploding. Um, and I understand having talked to some people last night in RTE, like there's a strike looming uh, before Christmas. And if that happens, the advertiser and the sponsors and people like that will get scared and say, well, let's put it back on Virgin, let's go somewhere else. Um, but this is a difficult time for media. Um, and we need a state broadcaster. Well, we need a broadcaster, but uh, the state needs to do something about it. But as, a, as somebody who pays the license fee, and we all should pay our license fee, something like this, we cannot put our hands in our pockets and, and cobble together 61 mm. million euro for these guys to make yeah. another mess of it. As you know, Paul, you should never waste a good crisis. This is a particularly good crisis within RTE yeah. and it will give them yeah. a huge degree of latitude to make the changes and use the crisis in order to implement those changes. But what you're telling is that there's no one in there who has the bottle or wherewithal in order to, to make those decisions and changes. Is that the reality of it? Look at the... Correct. Look at the assets they have. They have a little old radio station called 2FM. Um, Which they don't need. It should be privatised. Get rid of it. Correct. Sell it. Absolutely. This morning, uh, they'll have people running around with bales of newspapers, coffee, coffees and, and, and sandwiches and for everybody, and taxi costs. They're running up huge amounts of money before their very eyes that they cannot see. Um, they need to tighten that up. Lyric FM, I don't know whether anybody listens to that. Marty in the morning is fantastic with respect, but the rest of the station, sell it off, privatise it. 
Do they need all the stations? They're losing so many viewers to other good stations. One of my pals in RTE, Bill Malone, he, he left and joined Virgin. He opened up a r- number of radio television stations in the course of hours. And um, It's easy to do. RTE's output is tired. The staff are demoralized. Uh, and right now they're in a crisis that I think is beyond them sorting themselves out. And the state is kind of trying, wondering, will we bail them out? Will we not? But they're spending money like it's going out of fashion still. And where is the end game for RTE in all this? That's a very good question. I think the minister may need to do her job. Um, she should be calling them in for a summit and a crisis. I think with respect to Imelda, who was fantastic throughout this whole period, she's a fantastic public representative. Alan Kelly was great. Verona Murphy was great. But the politicians are looking for the sound bites to appear in the newspapers and in the media. They need to be stopped running in and out of the doll. They need to be sitting around a table having crisis meetings as to see how we can sort that out. One of the points I've said, and again, with respect to the listener, they've heard, heard me say this before, they should sell the RTE campus. They should move up to County Meath, County Louds, Fingal, get out of there and move. It, that'll take 20 years, sure, but at least they can get money in advance if they sell the site now. They're talking to the, the Land Development Authority. About yeah, but, but they, they've advised. Yeah, there. but they've advised them that it's not it's a nuts. good time to get rid of get rid of the land, and it kind of makes sense, Paul. To like, it's prime real estate there, and they've already sold some of the family jewels. But to get rid of them all, rid of them all, would be madness. Well, they're in a crisis at the moment. They don't have too many options right now. So uh, they would get some consultants to come in and give them an opinion. But unfortunately, the consultants that they're talking about at the moment is all retrospective. Somebody was on yesterday talking about it'll take 15 years in order for three people to do a full report for them. So there's issues that are there, but they need to look at the future and future planning. Get out of Donnybrook, sell the campus, move somewhere else and, and start rebuilding. Let me just put this to you and I put it to Imelda Monster. There is an onus and a responsibility now on the part of the Public Accounts Committee, not just to compel or belly rag them into getting the documentation they need, We now have to go through the courts. There now has to be some system in place where when they're asked for documentation, they get it and they answer the questions because ultimately their responsibility is to the paymasters. Those paymasters are you, I and everybody who's listening to this programme. So there is a responsibility on PAC in order for them, them to do something, is there not? Absolutely. But if I can give you one small example, like Ryan Tuberty still not has returned the 150,000 euro for a, a job he never did from a company he never heard of. And it was invoiced through his agent's associate company. Uh, and that money needs to be given back. Now, if I was a small business person and a former member of staff, um, I'd be arriving up at their house saying, can I have my pallet of Diet Coke back, please? Um, and that's how you do things. RTE just looked up to the sky and said, well, okay. I don't know how we're going to get the money back. OK, Paul, we've got to leave there. Paul Allen of Paul Allen of Associates. Thank you for joining us. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. A majority of people who fear they will need to be cared for in their older years worry they won't be able to afford it, according to a new survey. Six out of ten people believe they will need care, but fewer than half are saving for their future. The survey from Home and Community Care Ireland, which represents private pre- private uh, providers, uh, found recently. Now, Jamie Farrelly, uh, Policy and Communications Officer with HCCI joins us. Uh, Jamie, thanks for taking our call. Uh, we shouldn't be shocked by these uh, particular figures of these revelations, should we? No, um, I think it's quite obvious. People want to stay at home. We knew that already. And I think with the cost of living, we are not surprised that people can't afford to save for care. 
I think the interesting thing is that nearly 70% of the respondents says they don't trust the HSE to deliver care. So I think what that says, I think it, it paints a stark picture of kind of how unprepared we are to face the future care needs for aging population. And there's a huge demand for home care already in the past five years, but way more expected. If you look at the 2022 census figures, the highest increase in our population was the over 70s, 26% growth. So our, Ireland's having, it's a demographic sea change mm. um, and we need to shift our political and social priorities to reflect this. Because a failure to grasp this issue, it's going to lead to a generation of older, more vulnerable people being left behind, being left to fend for themselves in providing their care. Okay, well, let's talk about the figures. They strike me as being on the low side when it comes to people's realistic expectations in terms of what they have to have per annum for care. I mean, 53% believe they will need to save more than 10,000 a year. I think considerably more than 10,000 a year in order to get that care. Is that not reasonable? Yeah, I, I think, well, we first have to have a national conversation about how much care do we actually need because we, we don't talk about this. So the average HSE, the home care package, that's 7.5 hours a week, one hour a day. And, you know, is that enough? For some people, of course it is. But if you have moderate to high dependency, that's not going to keep you out of nursing homes. You know, and we, we don't have conversations like this. We don't talk about how much care we need. We don't talk about how much or how we're going to fund care. Do we keep on keep on going straight from the checker? Do we have a social care tax? Or are people going to have to save for themselves like they would for a state pen? Like, oh, have we lost? Have we lost Jamie? No, we, well, hopefully we'll get him back. Have we lost him? We, we'll, we'll, try and, we'll try and get him back there. Just be, while we're doing that, I want to give you some of the comments. Uh, this was in relation, first off, to the Garda recruitment age. You heard that uh, on the news. Mary can't believe that the recruitment age for Garda is going to be raised to 50 today. Whose bright idea was that, she asks. Most Garda are close to retiring at the age of 50. So what is the point of lowering the age limit? How will that even work in terms of their pensions? Uh, join at 50, have to retire at 60. That doesn't leave time for them to build up a pension worth talking about. It's ridiculous being a guard as a young person's game anyway, she says. Um, yeah, fair point, Mary, but I, what I would say to that is I know that the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, and I think it's going to be announced this afternoon down in Templemore, that she is in negotiation with Cabinet colleagues to look at the retirement age for Gardaí. So I presume that's something that's going to come out uh, sometime today or maybe tomorrow. Jamie's back with us. Uh, Jamie, Jamie, I just want to put the point to you, um, and it was raised that it's a possibility coming from Minister Mary Butler that she will put it on a statutory footing. That is a home care scheme. Presumably that's something you'd welcome. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This should have been years ago. And in fact, the scheme is very much delayed. It's new two or three years delayed. Um, and part of it, there has been progress in some. So next year, we're likely to get regulation. It might surprise you that home care is actually unregulated. So we'll get that next year. But... With the pace of progress, we're unlikely to see that kind of statutory entitlement. That's like your fair deal for nursing homes. Very unlikely to see that in the lifetime of this government. Uh, it's welcome news, though. If you look at all the other political parties, they're right behind it. So everybody wants this statutory scheme. It's just about prioritising home care. We haven't done this yet and we're still not doing it. So really, we need to have a national conversation about things like this. Now, it, it's quite disturbing that you raise the point that it's not regulated in this country. So what is the level of care that people are being given in their home? Or is there any way to try and ascertain that? So when I say it's not regulated, most home care is delivered through the HSE. And the HSE set a, a terms and conditions through the National Tender and National Authorization Scheme, as it's now called. So it's kind of quasi-regulated. But if you go privately 
anyone can anyone can set up a home care company. You know what I mean? So if you're going private outside the HSC, you, you don't always know who you're getting. There is a problem here as well, Jamie, and that's in it's relation. Lots of money. Sorry, Jamie, you're just uh, dropping out there, but I'll try and get this final question into you. One of the biggest problems that we have is the lack of home care providers, which is leading to huge waiting lists. It will take a long time just to chip into those waiting lists before we get something which could be deemed to be fit for purpose. Yeah, there there is. um, I think the the budget 2024 was very disappointing. It's not going to it doesn't give us very much hope for the future. It's probably a step backwards, really. There's been no increase in funding to boost hours. In fact, it's really been cut. So it's inevitable that waiting lists are going to increase. Uh, we've seen nothing really for carers, no mileage, no indexation of the living wage. So it's not going to rise next year. And no funding to implement other measures that are really important, like training and career structures. OK, Jamie Farrelly, Policy and Communications Officer with the HCCI. Thank you for joining us uh, this morning. That is where we have to leave it on this Friday morning. Thank you for listening. I'll be back to you Again, sometime in the future. Mike's back here on Monday. That's if they'll have me back after this morning. Have a great weekend. For me, Alan Cantwell, good morning. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.